Explore the minds and marketing strategies behind today's winning brands and businesses. Tap into the power of the creator economy with Earned by Creator IQ. Here's Connor Begley. So hi, everyone. Welcome to Earned. Today, I've got Rich Gersten on the show. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks, Connor. Pleasure to be here. You know, it's funny. I was reflecting on kind of how we got connected. I don't know if you remember this night, but it was uh, Sean Westfall that took us out for far too many oysters uh, one night. I think it was in New York. I was downtown with uh, Colin and Matt and Diva Curl, right? Yes. Colin, Matt, Diva Curl. Yeah. It was a long time ago. Very long time ago. But let's not date ourselves. <laughs> well, so for those that don't know Rich, Rich is a mainstay in the beauty industry as well as as an investor, doing it for over 25 years across a few different groups. Um, and more recently has been investing out of his True Beauty Ventures Fund, which is really specifically focused on kind of up and coming um, direct consumer and fast growing, um, you know, beauty brands, right? Smaller checks, smaller brands. But I think you've, you know, part of the reason that we are talking is, you know, we decided to partner together um, to help you identify some of these brands and evaluate them using our data. And then hopefully for us to kind of help you, you know, invest in and accelerate more of these folks because you've done a great job so far k18 kinship you're on the board of glow recipe and invested there moon juice and then again in the past obviously you've got nest and lime crime and and all those brands diva curl etc so it's uh it's fun that it's come to this after after oysters so many years ago it really is so rich why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of the story, right? Because a lot of people that are going to be listening to this, you know, um, don't know what it's like to be an investor or how you get to that point. How do you get somebody that says, I trust you to invest tens of millions of dollars into this business? Um, what's your story? Kind of how did you how did you get here? Yeah, I, I often get asked the question as a 56-year-old, slightly overweight, bald male, how I ended up as an expert investing in the beauty industry, and it, it was initially by accident, um, but has somewhat become intentional. It, back in the early 2000s, it was in 2002, and I was a partner at North Castle Partners, we acquired a business called Avalon Natural Products, which had two brands, Avalon Organics and Alba Botanica. Today, those would be called clean brands. Back then, they were called natural and organic. Today, they'd be sold in specialty beauty retail. Back then, they were sold in Whole Foods and health food stores. And so that that industry obviously has changed over time. And two years later, uh, I acquired uh, an interest in a prestige skincare brand called DDF. And that was in 2004. It was probably somewhere in two, early 2006 that the founder of North Castle Partners, Chip Baird, came to me and said, Rich, I think I'd like you to spend half your time just focused on the beauty space. Benefits of focus are cumulative knowledge and network brand. If you can do that, it'll, it'll be better for us. And I looked at him, I, I think I might've told him to go F himself politely because it was not something I was interested in doing at the time, um, but he was the founder of the firm. And so I said, yes, of course I would do that. And in 2006, um, I attended my first Women's Wear Daily Beauty CEO Summit as a sponsor. Uh, I was the only private equity investor at the event Fast forward that event 15, 16 years, and now there's as many investors there as there are, I think, beauty executives. Uh, but back then in 2006, it was 
me flying solo with a couple of investment bankers who I will keep unnamed, but I'm still very close with. And the three of us kind of hung out with each other at this conference, not knowing <laughs> who to talk to or what to do. Um, and then at the end of 2006, I made another investment for Northcast on a brand called Globe Minerals. And so in my last five years at Northcastle, we did three very successful beauty investments together. Uh, and then I left uh, and I went to Catterton. I was at Catterton for four years, wasn't as active in the beauty industry for me while I was at Catterton because Catterton was a much larger fund and, and Northcastle was much smaller and the beauty industry is very fragmented and the size of the check I had to write was much larger uh, at Catterton than at Northcastle. And so the kind of network and knowledge I had built over time started to become less relevant. I found myself trying to do things in different verticals, larger size. And ultimately, after four years, amicably parted ways uh, with my peers at Carrington and started up with a new firm that was being formed called Tengram Capital. And in the nine years I was at Tengram, uh, we made eight investments in the beauty space. It was our most active and most successful vertical, uh, self-mandated, probably in the last seven years or so I was at Tengram, I just started exclusively focusing on beauty. I didn't want to do anything else. I didn't like doing anything else. I was good at it. I enjoyed continuing to build network in the space. And once I self-mandated kind of 100% of my time on beauty, I was meeting with every brand or founder in the space that would meet with me. Um, and the interesting thing about that was I met some amazing brands and founders that were too small the day I met with them, uh, looking for less than 5 million of capital when my minimum was 15. Um, and they would say, if it's not you, then who? And I'd give them a big blank stare, just really didn't know where to send them because it didn't really exist. There was no institutional market for smart money, knowing the industry, willing to write checks less than $5 million. So I knew the white space was there because I had kind of been indirectly been living in it uh, for several years. And when I decided at the end of 19, really early 2020, to launch True Beauty Ventures, that's the white space that I wanted to go after. Um, and I asked a former colleague of mine, Christina Nunez, who worked with me both at Catterton and Tengram, and then in one of the Tengram beauty brands, Laura Geller, in a portfolio company role, she, she came and joined me really in the end of the first quarter of 2020 to really launch and build True Beauty Ventures. So long-winded way of saying I did a couple of deals, started to enjoy it, got asked to do it more, doubled and tripled down on it. And I woke up one day with about 12 or 13 private equity investments in the space and a real desire to kind of exploit the unique subject matter expertise I built over the years. In that case, it's about 20 years. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think that we, in our early stages, really focused on beauty as well, because like you said, there are network effects that occur because, you know, you specialize, you get better, you know, and it's just a good industry to be in. Um, I think for us, we're now in that kind of butterfly phase of kind of expanding across sectors. But again, it's just such a, it's still such a big chunk of the overall business. Um, and it's a great business to be in. Um, very much more communal, I've found, than a lot of other, uh, the verticals that we play in, like fashion or yeah, business. Yeah, founders, founders helping founders, executives helping other executives. I find, especially in the world that you live in, is that beauty tends to be on the leading edge of some of the things that are happening initially on Instagram, now on TikTok. It's just a category that lends itself so easily and well to those areas. Totally. If I were to say the kind of leading edge categories, it's like beauty, gaming, fashion, 
entertainment, frankly, is actually really big as well. And like those kind of lead the charge, right? Entertainment seems to be converging with beauty, at least as it relates to the launching of brands. You know, it's funny. I was just talking with, you know, the Chernin group, if you know them, and they're, yeah. you know, their big thing is like, we find really sticky media brands. And then the goal is to help them kind of create products. Right. And what's funny is I feel like beauty brands are kind of doing, you know, they're creating their own media empire and media empires around the products themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, I, tell, I tell all my brands that they, they have to think they're publishers. At the end of the day, brands are publishers. They've got to create content. They've got to repurpose content. They've got to engage with an audience like a publisher. But brands are publishers at this point. Yeah. Robert, the, uh, Robert Trifus, we interviewed him. He's a CMO at Gucci. And he's like, he goes to these publishers now. And he's like, I'm a bigger publisher than all of you. Just so you know. <laughs> like, like, think about it from that True. lens. Like, I now am a bigger publisher yeah. than Vogue. So like, how can yeah. we leverage me to help you and you to help me? Um, so, yeah. So totally. let's get into the kind of the, the details of investing, right? So, you know, again, I think people are still learning. There's gonna be a lot of people that are, that are new to this. You know, what does a typical week look like for you? How do you spend your time? How much of it is on sourcing deals? How much of it is on kind of relationships with LPs, right? Limited partners, what is their role? Um, and what do you think makes like a consistently successful investor over time, right? Because if you're if you're if you're not making people money, eventually they stop giving it to you, right? So you gotta 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 be able to to turn it into more. I don't know how people invest that don't specialize. Um, I drank the Kool Aid back in the late '90s when I became a consumer sector focused investor. So I drank that Kool Aid on sector focus. A while ago and obviously dialed that up on steroids a couple of years ago and really maybe eight or nine years ago by becoming a beauty sector focused investor and the reason you do that is because it's easy to get duped and fooled in our business right and if you're trying to understand too many different types of industries and categories you in my opinion tough to become proficient at any of them. And, and the investment business is ultimately about pattern recognition, right? You see the same thing over and over and over again. You begin to develop a view on what good looks like. Tough for me to describe sometimes, but you know it when you see it, you know the mistakes that are often made. And when you see them being made early, you just, life's too short, you go on and pass. And so I think part of being a good investor is the pattern recognition and the wins and learns you get from being an investor, because not every investment works out. And even some that work out don't always go according to plan. And so you learn on the journey in terms of what went wrong and how to fix it. I wish I can tell you there was a typical day, week, month, year. For me, our business is so fascinating because we're in the business of finding investments and making them. And there's an execution process in making them. You're in the job of monitoring them or managing them once you invest in them. You ultimately maybe have a job to exit them once you're ready for exit. And oh, by the way, we're just kicking off our fundraise for fun too. And so we also spend time fundraising. Um, yeah, yeah. Bit of a perfect form for me right now. But you, that's the beauty of this business is there's something new and exciting you're going to encounter every day, whether it's an issue or a problem or some good news from a brand or a founder who's, you know, didn't want to take your call for a month has now decided she's ready to take your call and, and wants to raise money. We spend a lot of time building 
relationships. We are, and maybe we'll get into it at some point on this podcast, but like I am a private equity investor turned venture capital investor. We really call ourselves more emerging growth investors because I think there's many aspects of the VC model that are broken, especially as it relates to consumer brand investing, which generally scales capital inefficiently, whereas most VCs like capital efficiency, and that doesn't necessarily happen. And the growth expectations don't happen as rapidly overnight in our business. It takes a while to build a brand until you hit that point where you start to kick in. And so I think we're trying to reinvent it, but part of our reinvention is concentrated portfolio, working with fewer brands so that we can be available to our founders, portfolio management and being a good partner is a big part of what we do every week. We're up to 10 investments before we start getting into that period of um, investing and I'm selling, we could get up to 15, 20 brands before we ultimately get into some of that equilibrium. And so uh, we have to build our own capacity and thank God, not all need as much as others and some want more and some want less. So it's a portfolio of time as well. But the job is so fascinating because you're meeting amazing founders when you're trying to find brands, you're working with amazing founders. Once you invest with them, you're meeting really interesting people, even when you're fundraising. A lot of our investors in our fund are beauty founders and beauty executives. We have traditional institutional investors too, but like I, you know, I have a dream in our second fund of having some really well-known beauty founders invest and create their own little advisory council for our founders, right? Oh, cool. Because founders would yeah. love to talk to successful founder. So I got a little convincing to do, but I, I, it makes sense, right? Because our brand and our space has become pretty well recognized. And I think founders understand what we bring to the table, but at the end of the day, there's nothing boring about what we do. And every day is its own amazing adventure. Yeah, for sure. It's funny. You have kind of a mixture of sales, right? You have to like convince these founders, Always. right? And then you have to talk to LPs and ultimately you're selling a financial product to them, right? And then separately, you have to also help them actually operate the business and like make sure that it's successful, which is, I, you know, like you said, I think reducing scope and focusing in on kind of a particular industry obviously increases your chances of success, right? Because somebody else trying to compete with you. We, we, yeah, go ahead. we have to have more winners. We need more winners than losers. The way you do that as an early stage investor is be proficient and expert in it. Doesn't mean we're going to be right all the time, but I do believe we'll be right a lot more than we're wrong and we're, we're counting on that. But like when you think about at the end of the day, what makes for a good investor and we, we post-mortem everything we do at Tribute. If it's working well, if it's not working well, we always go back and post-mortem. At the end of the day, especially in early stage investing, when you're investing in fairly nascent brands, trust your gut. And that guts both brand and founder, but it's mostly founder. Like if every time you encounter a founder and you hang up that call and say, I love that founder, and then the numbers may not look so good, probably should still invest. And that's where we struggle, right? Because we're very analytical at the same time, but got to trust your gut. You got to be skeptical because people are selling you too. And we know how hard it is to scale a brand in the space successfully. Uh, and then trust, but verify. Always trust, but verify as best you can. For sure. What? So when you are looking at founders, obviously there's the gut element, but what are some of the characteristics, like if you were to describe them that you've seen consistently, right? Because you've seen a lot of founders at this point. What would you say you've seen as kind of, what are your patterns there that you're identifying uh, on the founder side of things? Yeah, I think we we post more to map all the time. We've got, you know, more 10 brands and more than 10 founders because some brands have more than one founder and I've got a lot in my past and, and, and others. I think for us, what we have found 
and it's really Christina's word, superpowers, right? Like everybody, everybody has a superpower and identifying what that is, is an important part of the dialogue that we'll undergo with founders, but founders who know what their superpowers are and then know how to surround themselves with those that have complementary skills or superpowers usually is a good recipe. Um, and then in order to scale founders that can learn to delegate and trust others to do the jobs that they're hired to do, uh, especially when they're in areas where they may have more experience or relevant skill set than the founder. Mm -hmm. That's how you scale a brand, right? And so for us, it's like knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know. Now, again, what does great founders do in beauty? Generally product, right? There's a reason they're founding a business that's usually to solve a product need. And so they're, you know, we obviously spend a lot of time on product and founders are generally good developers. Um, but in terms of what makes the business successful over time, it's really recognizing where you're deficient and where you're strong and, and having the trust and confidence to complement your capabilities. Yeah. I remember getting advice at one point or reading advice on, you really need to work on your weaknesses, right? Make those better. And then at some point, my co-founder, John, was he's like, why? He's like, why do you want to be good at this? This isn't what you like doing. Like, why don't you focus on the thing that you're like top 1% in the world at, right? Like, get really good at that and then let other people do the other stuff, right? Like, it's uh, a mutual a mutual friend of ours, Laura Slatkin, um, one said to me, if I'm the smartest person in the room, meaning herself, if I'm the smartest person in the room, then I'm in the wrong room. Um, and that's the goal, right? Like we're all smart at certain things, but we don't want to be, we want, we want to surround ourselves with good, smart people. Christina is amazing with our portfolio company. She has such relevant operating experience in small brands. That's exactly what our founders are looking for assistance on. Right. And I don't get in the way when she's rolling there, like she's better at it than me and I do my thing. Yeah, totally. So you mentioned kind of trust. That, that, that's the other thing, Connor. I, I wake up now and I'm a founder. Yeah. Right. And Christine is a founder. And that means I'm seven by 24. I'm always on. I'm always stressed. And like our founders in the beauty space, we're trying to do our day job of investing and helping. And we're raising capital to raise funds. Just like when they're speaking to us, they're raising capital. They don't want to do that either. It's a necessary evil in terms of growing their business. And I, I find that now that we're sitting in the founder seats, it actually gives us empathy genes that most investors probably don't have with their other founders, but we're, we're, we live and breathe it every day. It's ours. It's just like a founder starting their own brand. It's, it's got quite a lot of similarities. Yeah. Have you seen a lot of people go from kind of operator to investor, right? Or founder to investor? It seems like a path. Like I know that that's what um, uh, Janet Gerwich obviously kind of went that route with uh, Olaplex or not with Olaplex, with Advent. Um, and that, yep. Yeah. Is that something you see pretty frequently? You, you don't necessarily see them starting their own funds, but mm -hmm. partnering with investors to leverage their skill sets. Although like, I think, um, Jamie from native deodorant may have her own fund now. And I think Carissa Jane's operates as an angel, uh, has invested in some brands and she obviously was the founder of hourglass. And so you definitely see it. I think again, part of what we're trying to build at true beauty ventures with this notion of also tapping into founders as, as investors of ours is to try and get the best of, 
of both worlds, right? Give the founders the exposure they want and the access to other founders and still have skin in the game as an investor without having to manage a portfolio of investments as an individual. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you mentioned earlier kind of trust, but verify, right? With regards to the investments. So like, what is verification for you? Like, what are the KPIs that you look at that you think like, if I'm an up and coming direct to consumer brand or I'm an up and coming beauty brand, and I'm trying to present myself to a company, like what are the metrics that I should yep. really be focused on making better? Yep, and we're, we're probably more focused on that than maybe some other investors. Just again, PE background brings good and bad with it. But like, you know, we're, we've launched in connection, collaboration with Beauty Independent, a mentorship program. And that mentorship program is meant for three brands every six months to effectively get put through a mini diligence process by True Beauty Ventures to see how ready or to get them ready for when they would need to fund. And we do dissect the DTC segment as an example of those brands. Um, And even if it's not a big part of the business or it's still relatively small, we'll often get asked, well, why do these metrics matter to you? And I'll always say, you know, your metrics tell me a lot of things about your business you may not be fully appreciating. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I look at your sources of traffic and revenue, how much of it's coming from organic and direct channels versus paid. Right. Because if you're only reliant on paid to drive traffic and revenues, I would perceive you as having a brand health problem, people Mm -hmm. or brand awareness problem for sure. Like you're just if people aren't searching you out organically, there's something wrong maybe with your brand. So sources and uh, of traffic and revenue tell us, inform us something, right? Then we go to to your retention or your repeat rates, right? If your consumers are buying once and not repeating, maybe you have a problem with your product quality or your product experience. You may not realize it, but your data is maybe suggesting that. Now, again, if something's too young and the use up rates and it's a limited SKU assortment, you may not get all the data you want, but those data points are very product reviews, very informing in terms of the quality of your product. We'll get to it, or media value, social following, is the, are you building a community and are they engaging with you? All those things help us understand the kind of health of your brand and the quality of your product overall. Um, but the other things we'll look at, and again, we have the luxury of doing it as a beauty investor. If you're in retail channels, your retailers give you your retail sales every week generally. And so we can measure the health of your sell through because most investors value businesses off of sell in or the company's net revenues. But again, the health of the business is driven by the sell-through and the replenishment. So we want to see what the sell-through is and is the retailer replenishing. And so those sell-through statistics we focus very heavily on. Um, And then again, like little things like your gross profit margin profile, because most brands are going to be unprofitable at a small scale, especially if they're investing in team and marketing. But like one of the ways an investor gets comfortable that this thing can have a path to profitability is as the revenues grow, is the gross profit flow through significant. And the great thing about beauty, it tends to be a higher margin category, but not every brand, especially new brands with less sophisticated founders, understand what a typical margin profile should be for a different category. And they're all about high quality products delivering at a value. That equation sometimes says bad margin, right? Or if you're a direct to consumer only, and you don't have plans to go into wholesale, but then someday you decide you want to go into wholesale, you don't have enough Eight. margin to support that yeah. expansion. So there's lots of various 
financial and other metrics or KPIs that we'll look at, but we'll always look at. Yeah. And on the kind of, obviously, you know, our focus is on the social media side of things, influencers, et cetera. Yep. And that's a big part of our partnership is using that as an assessment mechanism. And they give you a look yep. at the brands that you've invested in, you know, whether it was K18, Glow Recipe, Kinship, some of the others, you know, yep. these brands are really killing it uh, when it comes to social. You know, what made you decide to focus on that as kind of a thesis, right? Why is that one of the pillars that you think is important for? for yeah, it's, 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 it's a pillar. It's an important one. I mean, for us, you know, building an organic community is great, right? Because if you've got an organic community built and that community is loyal and talking about your brand and buying your product and referring your brand friends, that's how you drive some of those better metrics, right? At the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And then you and I go back a long time in the middle of the makeup boom right in the you know 2013 14 time frame when makeup was having all-time moments and instagram was becoming popular you and i would spend a lot of time and you'd present earned media value growth is a leading indicator for revenue growth which was a leading indicator for enterprise value growth and exit right and a lot of the makeup brands that were the top emv brands and tribe in those days all sold for big prices to strategic buyers primarily. And so there's always been an important correlation between earned media value, size, growth, engagement, and ultimately revenue growth and success. And so you, you know, I've been looking at your data for years, trying to get lead generation, right? Which brands are starting to pop. And by the way, I would also look at NPD data to see which brands were selling through. So we start taking, okay, what's selling through? What's getting earned media value growth? Which brands have strong engagement? If it's the same one across all three and they're still independently owned, I will make a call. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What? So, I mean, two of the brands, I think in particular that you've been a part of in Glow Recipe and K18 yep. have seen really explosive growth, right? Over the last, call it yep. few years. You know, what is it that they did that worked so well? Like from your perspective as a, as a kind of, you know, an investor and board member. Yeah. I mean, listen, it, for us, every investment starts with founder story, brand position, brand point of differentiation, brand aesthetic, right? Yeah. Both of those brands are beginning one at a time. But if you look at Glow Recipe, you know, Sarah and Christine's background, very successful uh, founders, but classically trained L'Oreal executives, strong business acumen, um, created a brand that quite frankly, today, still nobody's knocked off. And I'm not sure I quite understand it. I'm not encouraging it, but the entire inspired by Korea, but not a K beauty brand incorporating the fruit forward piece of the fruit ingredient into the product story and the visual beauty of the packaging and the brand, but not forgetting that it's still skincare and it's tried and true ingredients and efficacy matters and incorporating science ingredients before and afters all into the story and this kind of, you know, fruit float, fruit forward, clinically effective positioning with the most visual packaging was very, very unusual from a business perspective. And one of the things I love when I see brands, especially earlier stage brands is what we call productivity, right? So productivity for us is don't proliferate your distribution focus. Don't proliferate your assortment, at least when you're a young brand, right? Focus, find your heroes, market the crap out of your heroes. And Glow Recipe was able to build a reasonably good scale brand on the backs of less than 10 SKUs and a Sephora 
partnership in North America. They have other accounts too, but the bulk of the business. And that's a pattern, by the way, you'll see in other brands that have traded for a lot of money over the last you know, 24 months as well. And so we love that productivity mm-hmm. story. We love the positioning. But at the time, they were also close to a million Instagram followers. They're now at a million or north. They were always top 10 EMV. Now they're top one, two, three usually. And so they've clicked on all those relevant metrics that we would love to see as an investor. And they just nailed it. Yeah. And I don't even yeah. know if your data picks up TikTok, but they were way ahead of the TikTok game before everybody else. And part of their recent success and really rapid escalation and growth is their their prowess on on TikTok and, and the, the good fortune of having some, some viral moments. For sure. Yeah, TikTok's definitely a part of the tracking. I think we rolled it out, I don't know, six months ago, nine months ago, something like that. Yeah. But I think the um, with that being said, it's still something that you need to, because there's a lot of stuff that won't be, it'll be mentioned, but not like tagged, right? So we still need to figure out exactly yeah. how to solve that problem. Um, so uh, talk- and, then, and then take K-18 as an example, like take K-18 yeah. as an example, right? I mean, again, great founder story. Uh, K-18 had barely been launched when we invested it. It was initially called K-Hair Pep. They were rebranding it to K-18. It was being tested in some salons in Australia. I met Subin and Britta in the early days of 2020. I had known them for several years before that meeting in New York City where they presented K-Hair Pep to me. And then eight months later, after True Beauty Ventures was formed, it was our first investment that we subsequently followed on. But when we heard the K-18 story and what it was, I'm like, if three quarters of what he's saying is true and only three quarters of what he says you can understand anyway, it's a big joke between Subin and I, but like if three quarters of what he says is true, this thing is unbelievable, right? The product efficacy, the product differentiation, the simplicity of the story, one skew, four minute leave-in fixes your damaged hair. I mean, really? If that's true, that's amazing. And the reality is we tested the product, not me, of course. It's one of the downsides of being bald. Um, <laughs> we tested the product of the team and the, the feedback was unbelievable. And everybody who tried the product, the feedback was unbelievable. But what they did really smart is they built these evangelists in the salon community globally who became evangelical supporters of this brand, real authenticity created from the salon level, real brand ambassadors created at the stylist level, created that buzz and momentum for the brand. And I, I personally think it's the buzziest brand in the beauty industry right now. And we're very fortunate that it was our first investment and that we're part of the, uh, of the investor group in there. We've helped Suveen build and recruit an amazing team. And founder knowing his superpowers is all about the science and the innovation and hiring world-class talent to surround himself with. Yeah, well, I mean, he brought on Michelle Miller, right? Who came from Cosas and helped build out that program from a social perspective. And then, you know, just, uh, I agree, kind of surrounding yourself. It's a team, it's a lot of the team, especially on the marketing side that have worked together before in different jobs prior to K team. They kind of put a little bit of the mini band back together again. And it's a, it's a team that, that, you know, again, when you're winning like that brand is, it's always more fun. Um, but it's a team that enjoys really legitimately enjoys being together and have worked together before. And they've got great, I mean, talk about TikTok when they did the K-18 hair flip challenge, when they launched Sephora, I remember like in the first week, it was like six, 7 billion views. And I thought it was a typo on my phone. I just couldn't understand how something could go that viral that fast. <laughs> yeah, I, I still have it. Right now, Connor, it'd be probably 11 billion views. I, like, I, I still can't process it. 
Yeah, I still uh, I still don't quite know what makes something go viral or not. I don't I don't know who's cracked that formula, but it is nice when it happens for sure. Yeah, listen, we tell our like we always tell our brand there's no silver bullet, and I'm sure no one intentionally does something to try and go viral. It just happens, and you got to put especially on TikTok. It's very different than Instagram. What works on Instagram doesn't work on TikTok, and vice versa. You got to throw a lot of spaghetti on that wall in TikTok not filtered, very genuine and authentic, and you'll never know what's going to hit. <laughs> yeah, I know uh, when I talked to Toto, he's an SVP of marketing at Benefit. He's like, we expect 75% 75 of our creative to fall flat, like just, just to be a total flop. <laughs> it's like, and you have to be comfortable with that, um, which, is, yep. uh, which is tough. No, totally. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive sometimes. Needs yeah. to be humorous. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that go into it. Yeah. So let's kind of flip that. Right. So that's kind of the the real stellar standouts. You know, obviously you've had investments that have not gone as well. Right. Investments that have you know not gotten the you know performed as you would have expected. When you look back on that and you do the same kind of pattern matching, the same kind of postmortems, yeah. what are those patterns that you find? What's well, kind of the inverse? I think it almost always goes to the team. Right, especially in my PE days, you know, earlier stage, it's the, the the number of team members, the quality and experience of the team will be less. It's commensurate with the size of the business. In my old PE days, if you got the team part wrong, you were in trouble. Like you have to hire a great team, and you know, you've met Colin and many of his members of that Diva Curl team. I mean, Diva Curl was a successful, very successful investment for Tengram, and large part because of the authenticity and uniqueness of the brand and the product, but with a mediocre team, it would have probably been a mediocre investment. And with a great team, it becomes a great investment. So I think having the right people on the bus with you, it's why I always work with Alana, right? Alana's done it twice mm -hmm. for me now. And I want to surround myself with lots of Alanas if, if ever possible, right? So I think, you know, I've learned in my PE days that the quality of the team matters. And I think founders are beginning to understand and appreciate that earlier on too. They don't necessarily have the budgets for it, but I think founders are realizing I'm not good at running the day-to-day of my business. I know what I'm good at going to where we started the conversation and try and help me backfill, get some of this off my plate and get someone better at it. So the, the quality and experience of the team is always going to be, in my opinion, dispositive to the outcome of a traditional private equity investment for sure. You know, when we look at common mistakes that are made and where the pattern recognition generally kicks in, you know, again, oftentimes it's that distribution or skew proliferation, right? And ultimately why that matters is focus and resources, right? Small brands have limited resources, therefore they should focus their limited resources on things that are gonna drive the best outcome. If you've got 22 countries and 13 different retailers with 35 products trying to bring out new products, is that an easier business or harder business to manage than someone who's in a Sephora exclusive with my own .com with five schools? Just more complex. Right. There's just a lot more going on. Yeah. So try and keep it simple. Focus on productivity. Uh, you know, we talked about things like, you know, inadequate margins or uh, other mistakes, you know, not registering your trademark in China early, cost you more in the long run. There's just a lot of things we'll always see over and over again. It's part of the fun in the mentorship program yeah. is we're actually fixing mistakes that are either going to be made or have been made when it's still small and early and easier 
to fix. When you get to 22 countries and 42 products, like you, it's hard to fix things. Margin at Profile in particular, one of our mentees in our first cohort, we literally spent half the time in the mentorship program helping her sharpen her pencil on how to improve her gross margins and reduce her cost of goods. Because if she was going to launch and scale with what she had, she would never have had an interesting business. It wouldn't have made sense on an economic model perspective. And so that's the fun part of the mentorship program is it's so much easier to fix stuff. And even earlier stage investing, you know, at Tengram, I bought some fixer uppers. I kind of made a living there fixing stuff up, but you got value for it, right? You get what you pay for, um, but there's more risk and more work. And if you really get the team part wrong, when you're trying to fix something up, you're, you know, you'll be dead, which puts a lot of pressure on the team piece. But it, there is tremendous pattern recognition in probably any consumer products investment. But when you specialize like I have, they get very specific in terms of the, the mistakes you're often see made. Absolutely. And for those just that don't know Alana, Alana is the CEO of Revive Skincare, previously CEO of Laura Geller. And where was she with you before that? What was the one before that one? That was her, that was okay. her first uh, CEO, but you know, she was also on the board of, of Nest and this works, Cosbar and Algenist with me. So, you know, she and I are very involved. It's where, you know, Christina, who works with me now at Tribute Ventures, when she was at Tengram decided that she wanted to do a stint in an operating role and thought Alana could be a great mentor. So she went to work at Laura Geller for a year. Um, and one year became three oh, wow. years and we sold, we sold her and the business in the process. Um, but, you know, I, one of the reasons, you know, I love Christina and she's such a great partner for me. She also got trained by Alana with just some great training. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's do one more kind of one more business question and then we'll do one, one yep. end of show question. So, you know, I asked yep. the same question to Janet Gerwich. So you, you know, you've sat on the board of a lot of different companies for many years. You know, I'd be curious, what do you consider the role of like a good board member? And then how do you kind of operate as a board member? What does your kind of process look like? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's different a little bit as a PE investor, probably more as a VC investor akin to what I'll say now, but like as a PE investor, you're so involved in your businesses every day that there's oftentimes you don't get to a board meeting learning anything. You're already familiar with it and you kind of try and facilitate the conversations of the Connors and other peoples of the world on your board that may not be as close to it and, and really try and get the right strategic topics brought to the forefront and have them discussed with a broader universe of perspectives and opinions. What I find now for me, because I'm, you know, while we're very involved, it's not like being a majority owner, right? We probably get more information from a brand than any other VC fund in their right mind would ever ask for, but it's still not the same level of information that we would get as a, as a majority owner. Um, so for me, and on most of our investments, we either have a board seat or an observer seat or both or two, one of each. Um, and so we, we come to that board with a perspective of being a good sounding board, you know, being able to share our perspectives, being able to, uh, you know, share our learnings and observations in my case over 20 years and, 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 and really being able to access the network and experience that I have. And so there's very few challenges or, or issues or opportunities I haven't confronted at some point in my past. I can share those experiences and stories. I can connect people, you know, um, one of my founders the other day was interviewing a candidate for a position and gave me like three names to quickly back channel. And within like 24 hours, I had feedback on all three people. And, and she was like, you really do know everybody. I, I don't, I actually don't know how you do this. Um, <laughs> but that's ultimately, that's your role as a board member too, right? My network is 
is available to you and we'll try and find the right solutions to the problems you have within the network or we'll try and find the right people who can exploit an opportunity you might see because we'll be able to get them if get to them if we don't know them already but i think it's just being smart conversant listening responding when asked to addressing an issue when you see it that maybe no one's thinking about um and i love board meetings because there's lots of different perspectives and the board's composed or comprised properly. There's a lot of complementary perspectives as well. For sure. Well, let's get to the kind of fun end of show question. So if you could invest in one, so you talked about they hit this, they hit this, they hit this, right? These are the three check marks. If you could get a piece of one private business that you don't have access to today, what would it be? And we'll, we'll assume it's going to be in the beauty space. What's the one thing you're like, I would love to? You know, this is a this is a really bad question for you to ask me because <laughs> I don't want my competitors to necessarily reach out and cold call or, oh, if they like it, maybe we should look at it. And I know your podcast is viewed by millions around the world. And so <laughs> I was a little bit leery in giving you, but I will tell you, um, there are a couple of brands that we continue to be in dialogue with that if you know if we could invite ourselves onto those cap tables we'd eagerly uh, await the invitation i think the you know one of our mentorship program that we talked about one of those founders in particular uh fiona from youthphoria uh she's amazing she's just she was a great uh student great listener and has amazing talent on tiktok and other things it's a brand one of the brands we've got a laundry list of brands connor by the way we're going to have tribes start tracking that they are that they're not that they should and Fiona, Fiona and Euphoria are one of them. Um, Michelle Ronabot out in LA. Uh, we've known Michelle for a long time. We love her brand. She was just in Glossy today, launching 250 Sephora doors. So proud of her and what she's done. She's come a long way. Uh, Amy at Tower 28. Been talking to her for at least five years. She's the definition of capital efficient, by the way, she's been able to scale her business with no outside or no meaningful capital. But I love Amy, what she's doing. She's giving back to founders with her clean beauty summer school, invited Christina to participate in that. So if Amy ever wants an investor, True Beauty Ventures is waiting <laughs> uh, for the invitation. Um, and so those would be a handful. We love Ami Cole, a small brand. We, we talked to them about six months ago. They were really just starting out. It was too small for us, but as she starts to scale her brand, we stay close to her as well. So I don't want to give our whole list of, of people away, but um, there's some amazing brands, many I didn't mention. Um, there's no shortage of great founders and great ideas in the beauty industry. It's our job to filter them out. And one of the ways we filter them out or in, as we say, is through relationships. And so every one of those founders that I just mentioned aren't just brands I've spotted in tribe data or walked into a store and noticed that those are founders that we're trying to cultivate relationships with. And, you know, hopefully those relationships all ultimately become investment opportunities. Yeah, for sure. Which, which one, well, one on Amy, Amy is a rock star, big fan of hers as well. I was also part of that summer school program. It was cool. And then, uh, yeah, on, uh, what was Michelle's brand? I can't remember it off the top of my head. What is yeah. It's her last name. It's eponymous brand, R-A-N-A-V-A-T. Yeah. Ayurvedic inspired skincare and hair care, uh, really authentic, great product. My team loves it. My team loves the product. I love the brand. There you go. Well, uh, well, I really appreciate you taking out the time today, Rich. I'm excited to partner with you and with True Beauty Ventures on this kind of investment side of things. And uh, yeah, let's let's keep 
Yeah, listen, for me, for me to, 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 to think back on the drinks downtown, the, we won't get into the, my son's Facebook ending up. Oh, I forgot Facebook about now. that. <laughs> we've, had, we've had a lot over the years that goes back a long time. And for me personally, this partnership is the culmination of, of a friendship and a relationship built over a long time. And, and I can speak for all of us at True Beauty Ventures saying we're thrilled about the prospects of taking this all together. Absolutely. And I got to tell that story just for a minute because I think it's <laughs> so, uh, Rich. <laughs> so Rich was trying to, I'm trying to remember the exact details. I was trying to show you something or you something on, and long story short, you end up logging into Facebook on, or I log into my right. Facebook on your phone and then you yep. posted a very thoughtful photo of a Christmas tree and the Christmas spirit and, or the holiday spirit. And, and, uh, and my, my wife goes, wow, Connor, it was like so nice that you posted there. Like, it's really like heartfelt. And I was like, I didn't post anything. And then, <laughs> and it took us a while of sleuthing to figure out that, uh, you were logged into my Facebook account, like actively. Yeah, like when my son playing basketball showed up, things kept showing up, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then it was your son. Yeah, that was the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. All good, my friend. Thrilled, thrilled to start this off, and looking forward to a good future. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. All right, thanks, Rich. Appreciate you taking the time. Be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Earned by Creator IQ. Creator IQ is your all-in-one solution to grow, manage, scale, and measure your influencer marketing program. Ready to unlock the power of the creator economy? Get started with a demo today at creatoriq.com.